So someone asked me about this passage a while back. And I remember being asked and thinking, yeah, that's a kind of hard one. And we started this series on our strange Bible, and maybe it's not just our strange Bible, but sometimes our really confusing Bible. Passages that we read, and we stop, and we think, there's ones, some stories we've looked at that are just strange. You think, wow, that's just really weird. There's other stories or passages you read, and then you read again, and then you read again, and you're still really not sure what exactly is going on. And this is one of those kind of passages like I said, I remembered thinking when the person asked me about it that, yeah, that's kind of hard. And then I started studying it this week, and I remembered, yeah, it's really hard. Because there are a lot of strange things that go on in the passage. There's some confusing things. There's issues with words and even just simple words. And this is one of those things that, for those of us who read our Bible, we think this, but there are people who sit in classrooms and universities and study, and they'll write entire books or long articles on just a single word. In fact, I found one article that was just a summary of a whole bunch of other articles that were about just one word in this passage. And this one article traced through about 22 different articles and books the history and different interpretations of a single word. So, I want to begin looking at this passage with one, a touch of humility and say, I think I think I know what's going on here, but I can't say for sure. And I want to say at the end of the day, we may not agree on it exactly. And I'm just saying, this is where I'm at. But I would invite you, if you have questions about it, that we can engage in conversation and say, what's going on here? So let's kind of set the stage, and then we'll jump into the story here. And so we are in the letter of what we know as 1 Corinthians. And the fact is, it's probably really at least 2 Corinthians, because if you go back earlier in this letter, in chapter 5, it talks about he had already sent them at least one letter, and they'd answer back. So that's in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. So he had sent them one letter, they had sent him back. So we're already jumping in on the middle of a conversation. And so it's like reading a chain of emails where some of the conversations have already been deleted. And so he wrote them, he had been in Corinth had helped start this church. Then he had moved away and he heard about some problems. He had sent them one letter. They had responded to it. And this is at least that response to that first response. There may have been other correspondence. So we're kind of coming in on the middle of a conversation. And here he is speaking to this city of Corinth. And Corinth sits on this tiny little isthmus, this little strip of land that connects the part of northern Greece to southern Greece. And it was a major trade route in the ancient world partly because a lot of people didn't go around, like going around that southern tip of Greece because of the bad weather and the treacherous storms that would come up. So sometimes they would just haul the goods to one side of the isthmus and then haul them on land across a few miles because even though that was a lot of work, it was a lot better than trying to sail around the southern end. It also connected the northern part and the southern part. So Corinth was this crossroads. They had these giant games every year which would rival the Olympic Games. We've all heard of the Olympic Games, the games that are continuing on and going on now, but there was these games on the isthmus there that were these major games. And so Corinth was a city of power. It was a city of prestige. It was a city of status. It was a city where people thought very highly of themselves. And these were some of the issues that Paul was dealing with, that where this culture around them had started creeping into the church. This is something that happens in today's world where you go to different churches, and sometimes the church doesn't always reflect so much Jesus 
as it reflects the culture around it. Or we adapt parts of it and it comes in and it all bleeds in. So that's a part of what's going on here. And so this is what we see in this letter. So I want to give a quick outline of the letter. And as I do that, I want to kind of a, just highlight one resource that I find often very helpful in my studies is one called The Bible Project. And The Bible Project is a, an online a, um, led by a scholar named Tim Mackey who produces in The Bible Project along with this large team, they produce videos. And they're these short little videos, five to eight minutes long. And one of the great things the Bible, they do theme videos on different words and studies. But one of the other things The Bible Project has produced are summaries of each and every book of the Bible. Now, again, when it comes to summaries of books, you can go and if you see my bookshelves there, I'll have maybe several different commentaries written on a particular book of the Bible. And oftentimes, the scholars will debate a little bit about how the book is arranged or the exact arrangement. But I find the ones from the Bible Project to be very helpful. And as a visual learner, they kind of draw them out. They have these clever little drawings and they picture it out. And so, it's one way maybe as you're reading your Bible and you're getting ready to start a new book of the Bible, find the Bible Project. It's just thebibleproject.org or look it up on YouTube, the Bible Project, and just watch the little video. Like I said, there may be five to eight minutes long that summarize the book. And it kind of gives you a big picture of where the story of that particular book is going. So 1 Corinthians is written to this church that's having issues. And there's a series of issues that Paul addresses in the letters. And in each case, what Paul does is talk about how the gospel of Jesus applies to it. So the book starts off in the first few chapters and talks about there's divisions in the church. And so it talks about how the gospel says we're a community centered on Jesus and not marked by status. And then Paul begins addressing issues of sexuality. There's even a guy sleeping with his, his um, father's wife. And so there's the thing, and he's saying, Jesus died for us, including our broken relationship, and then our bodies matter. And then he goes into another, I guess another part of what we would call strange Bible, this passage about food sacrificed to idols. But at the end, what Paul says is the gospel teaches us that what we should do is based on our love for the well-being of others. And then the section we're in, chapters 11 through 14, covers what it looks like when the people of God gather. And issues about that, remember that why we're gathered and we're a unified spirit. And then he concludes with a passage on the resurrection, because apparently there were discussions about the resurrection. And so in all these things, he's tying it back, saying the gospel of Jesus applies to all of life. And so I think it's important to think about these things as we begin the study of this passage to see it's not just a passage in isolation, but it's part of a bigger story, and I think that's where they all connect. And so what's going on here in our passage? So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 2. Um, and so this is where I'm at in terms of it, and I think it's helpful as you read your Bible sometimes to wrestle with it a little bit to wrestle with it because it is an act of faith, an act of faith to wrestle with the Scripture. And so there's a variety of understandings that people have had. Some see the passage about the breaking of social conventions. That maybe what Paul is getting at is that people in Corinth were breaking social conventions and he, he wants them to pay attention to that. Others understand it as being an issue of shame or respect or propriety in worship. Some scholars see it as a call not to blur the difference between the sexes where it comes between long hair and short hair. Or maybe it's about women flaunting social conventions. 
But in the course of my studies, I found another scholar named Lucy Pepiot, and she offers, I think, a different way of looking at it. And she isn't the first to introduce this, but probably spelled it out in the most depth, which to me has made the most sense in terms of what's going on. Because as you read it, you think there's a lot going on here. And maybe if you were listening to it, you may have even thought, wait a minute, I thought Paul just said this. Now he seems to be saying something different. And so there's some confusion. Or maybe you heard something here and you thought, but doesn't Paul say something different in another place? And the other question is, maybe one of the questions you had is, okay, it says here, or Paul seems to say, that, you know, the very nature of things teach you that a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him. So all you guys with long hair, it's a disgrace, right? Or the question of, wait a minute, he says that in all the churches, the practice is for women to have their head covered. Not seeing it here, am I? So what is Paul talking about here then? Well, let's get into it and maybe, like I said, offer a different thing. So he's finished off and he starts off. So we're in verse, chapter 11, verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I passed on to you. So Paul starts off and says, hey, you guys are doing good. You're doing what I taught you to do. And he goes on, he explains, he says, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Well, that's perfectly clear, isn't it? And so when I talked about that idea of a word in all these studies, one of the words that a lot of people have a question about is that word head. And most of us think, well, what's a head? It's pretty obvious, right? We all have one. And most of the time, this word, this Greek word kephale, which is translated head here, that's exactly what it means, a physical head. But it probably doesn't mean that here, does it? I mean, it doesn't make sense like, so, okay, well. But where this is where it starts to get a little tricky to wonder what exactly is going on because it's used in three different relationships. There's the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And so one thing we would think is, well, if it's used in these three different places, it should probably mean roughly the same thing in all three, because it would be really confusing if he meant one thing in the first part and then something different somewhere else. And so the key part is this end relationship. The head of Christ is God. And so the fact that it's at the end of the sentence in Greek suggests this is the one that has priority. Well, so we know it's not the physical head. But so what does it mean? Some suggest it's ruler or authority, but this can run into some issues because this begins to get into the issue of, well, but Christ and God are fully co-equal, so can we really say God is the ruler over Christ? And so this is where, again, and this isn't just something new. This was, you think, oh, well, this is just modern interpreters struggling with it. Back in the early church, men like John Chrysostom who was an early preacher, he looked at this passage and he said, no, nah, that doesn't make sense. He said, whatever this word kephali means, it has to mean the same thing in all three. But at the same time, we also have to recognize that God is extremely different from us. And so whatever relationship God has to Christ, we can never say it's exactly like any human relationship. 
because we are not like God. And so there's this thing going on. And so the way he says it is the relationship of God to Christ is so radically different that no word is going to apply exactly the same to both. And so the concept that seems to come closest is something about there's a sharing of essence or a relationship, that it's about a connection, and that it's not just about man-woman. And this is even where it gets, I said, this is where this passage gets hard because there are rabbit trails aplenty. I mean, I have, I found even just entire books written on just this passage from 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. And so we've got 20 or 30 minutes to try and delve down into it. And so we're not going to have time to explore every little trail, every little thing that goes on. But what I want you to see is in part, there's a lot going on and it gets complicated. And part of it is even just this idea that the word there, man and woman, I'm curious, does anybody have a different translation in their Bible? Anybody got their Bible up? Sometimes it says husband and wife. Why? Because in Greek, there was only one word. There was one word could mean either husband or it could mean man. And the same word that means woman could also mean wife. So in certain translations, I'm pretty sure the NRSV does this, is some translations it will say, well, but it's the husband and the wife, or is it man and woman? Complicated, isn't it? So whatever it is that there's some connection between these, and the other reason I don't think that kephale probably means authority is because here it says, well, if the head of the woman is man, that means man has authority over the woman. But if we flip back just a few pages in the book of Corinthians, chapter 7, verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. But then it says, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. So, was Paul just confused? Did Paul just forget what he said? Did he forget, like, he was writing along saying, yeah, you know, man has authority over the woman, but the woman has authority over man. And then a few chapters later, he's like, oh, well, wait, no. Man has authority over woman. Possible, but I don't think that's likely. That doesn't seem to be the right way to say that there's something going on. So there's something else going on that head seems to suggest a union. And again, there are scholars aplenty that have written books and long articles about just that one simple word. But it seems to suggest something like that. And even over time, the idea of the meaning. But we're only on verse 3. And it gets a little harder because now it says, every man who prays or prophecies with his head covered... And even the language there in the, in the Greek is a little just is like down according to his head. That's all it means. So it's like, is it talking about hair or is it talking about a covering? It's not really clear. Dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophecies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. The same as having her head shaved. And so, so what we get is, first of all, we notice one thing. Who's prophesying? Men and women. But the men... They're supposed to keep their heads uncovered. The women are supposed to keep their heads covered. So somehow when a woman does it without a covering, she dishonors her head. So men should do it without. Women should have a covering or they dishonor their head. Presumably, the heads he talked about earlier, 
So now are we talking about physical ads or spiritual ads? <sighs> Pastor, just get to the point, right? The point is, it's hard. It's complicated. All right. So if we skip down a little bit, why shouldn't they do it? So if we jump down to verse 7. It says, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. And then we think, oh, wait a minute. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And so part of that takes us back to the first pages of the Bible, right? To Genesis 2, where there's the story of creation. Although if you remember the first two chapters of the Bible, creation story is told twice. Have different perspectives. And in the first story, it talks about God creating man and woman in His image, in the image of God He created the male and female, Genesis 1, 27 and 28. And then in chapter 2, we have the story that we're maybe familiar with where God causes man to fall into a deep sleep, and then He takes from His side, and a lot of older translations said His rib, and it doesn't mean that really, literally, it was almost like takes a half of him, and the man and the woman, and so it's, he takes from his side and makes someone equal to him. And so Paul seems to be referencing that here, but is he? Because he says, man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. So did Paul forget what it said in Genesis 1, that man and woman are created in the image of God? And this is where people start to throw their hands up in the air and say, wait a minute, Paul seems really confused. And, and I read it, and I'm thinking, wait a minute. Paul knows his Bible. In fact, one scholar I was listening to, if you read Paul's letters and the things that he writes, he just pulls things from left and right and all these scriptures. There's a good chance as a rabbi that at a minimum he had memorized the first five books of the Bible. And an even better chance that he knew by memory the entire what we know as the Old Testament. Most of us are happy to remember a verse or two. Maybe remember what books are in the Old Testament. But there's a very good chance that Paul, as a trained rabbi, as a scholar, could recite from memory the entire Old Testament. So he just pulled things left and right. So do we think that Paul just forgot what Genesis 1 said? Do we think that he just said, oh, well, no, man, it's... Man's created in the image of God, but woman, she's just the glory of man. So, and this is where I think Lucy Pepiat, in drawing on some other scholars, comes up with, with a, what I think is a valuable suggestion. And what her suggestion is, is as we're reading this, that what Paul is doing is, remember what we said, that the Corinthians had written him a letter, that he's responding to what they have written. So I want you to imagine an ancient Greek manuscript. And when letters were written, they didn't have, you know, we print off paper and we're like, oh, I didn't like that one, throw it. It was a lot of work to make a letter. It was a lot of it. And making even the parchment, what it was written on was expensive. And so one of the things they did to conserve space was they ran all the letters together. And there, was no, there was no word spacing. There was also no punctuation. Now, if you read this, we see all kinds of punctuation, right? We see commas, we see periods, we see the beginnings of sentences. And so I want you to go back, if you have your Bible, back a few chapters to chapter 6. 
chapter 6, verse 12, Paul's responding to the Corinthians, and it says, and if you don't have it in front of you, I'm going to do air quotes. He says, quote, I have the right to do anything, end quote, you say, but not everything is beneficial. And then again, quote, I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. And then he says, you say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. And the quote ends. All right. In the original Greek, and the only reason I want to pay attention to this, in the Greek manuscript, there are no quotation marks. The other thing is, if you were to go and look at it, those words where the NIV here has, you say, there aren't any words that say that. There is no corresponding words to what it says you say. So why do the translators put it in there? Were they just making things up? No, they were recognizing that Paul was doing something, that he was quoting back to them some of what they said. And they knew that because what he was saying didn't seem to match up with the rest of his teaching. Because it begins here, it says, I have the right to do anything. Does that sound like Paul? I have the right to do anything? No. And so they're recognizing that something is going on here, that they're using a rhetorical argument. We do the same thing sometimes. If you've ever had a discussion with someone and maybe you're having a conversation or an argument and they say something to you, sometimes what we do to respond is we kind of say it back to them, right? And maybe exaggerate a little bit, maybe focus on a little things and kind of play back their argument to, in other words, insert our own argument. And Paul does this a number of times here. It happens in chapter 6, it happens in chapter 8. And so we see that where the translators, these editors have added quotation marks. And even if you compare translations, sometimes you find the quotation marks aren't always in exactly the same place because they're trying to guess. And this isn't, hear me now, this isn't to say, well, we should doubt our translations and just throw them all out. These people don't know what they're doing. It's to say that this isn't easy and there's hard things going on. And what Pepiat suggests, along with several other scholars, is that is what Paul is doing here. That some of what we're reading in 1 Corinthians 11, and I think what she says makes sense, not just for this, but for a number of other reasons, what she is doing here is quoting back some of their arguments to them. And so, here in this case, what's happening? Paul has consistently talked about each part having value. He's talked about working closely with women. He's talked about them prophesying. But then he seems to contradict himself because where he says in the one part, he says, in verse 8, for man did not come from woman, but woman from man. And then later on, he says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so man is also born of woman. So just in a few sentences, he seems to contradict himself. Unless not all these words are his. Unless some of what's going on is he's quoting back the Corinthians to themselves. And so here's the solution to say something like this, that he's quoting them back, and so there's this conversation going on. So once you hear it this way, he starts off and he says, I praise you for doing the right things. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. But you say, every man who prays or prophecies with his head covered dishonors his head and every woman who prays or prophecies with her head uncovered dishonors his head. It is just as though her head were shaved. So if we imagine verse 4 and 5 in quotes, 
where this is now what the Corinthians are arguing. And in fact, it seems to make sense because the rest of the letter to the Corinthians, one of their issues is what? It's issues of honor and respect, and they're all about, I want honor, and I want to be given my rights and my due. If you read the beginning of the letter to the Corinthians, a lot of it is Paul saying, I don't care. I'm the scum of the earth. You know, it's not about honor and shame. In fact, I'm the lowest of the low. One of the key verses in the book of Corinthians is, you know, the gospel is what? Foolishness to the Greeks, and it's a stumbling block where he talks about the challenges of it. And he says, like in verse chapter 2, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I for I resolved to know nothing with you except Christ and Christ crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. And so Paul has been talking and battling this society that's steeped in honor. And so what it seems like, or what, the, what I, think, I think is happening at this moment is, the Corinthians have taken Paul's teaching about the head, whatever that means about this idea of connection and honor, and they've taken it to the next level, and they've started to twist it a little bit. And so they've started to say, well, wait a minute. Now the man, they need to prophecy with their head covered, or no, or no I'm sorry, prophecy with their head uncovered, but the woman needs a prophecy with it covered. And the reason why is because of what they give in verse 7 through 10. But what if verses 4 and 5 are the words of the Corinthians, where they're saying this, and then again down in verse 7 through 10, they're arguing, and they say, well, a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. What if instead of that being Paul's words, that were the words of the Corinthians? They're the ones who've taken his teaching and misused it a little bit. They've taken this idea, and they've begun to do it, and what they're doing, in fact, is putting down the woman and saying, no, no, no. Where Paul all along, in fact, we turn to the next stories, Paul all along has said what? One of his biggest analogies in the book of Corinthians later on is every member, every part of the body has value. And no one part of the body has more value than the other. Which he seems to be arguing here. Unless these words are the Corinthians, and if they're the words of the Corinthians... Then he's saying, no, 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 that's not right. The Corinthians have developed this idea, and they're saying, well, a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. And my guess is, it was men saying that. Probably not a woman. He says, for man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman from man. So Paul has taken, or I'm sorry, the Corinthians have taken some of what Paul's teaching, and they've begun to teach it a little, or to misuse it. And so, I want you to imagine that where what's going on is Paul is initially praising them, but then he quotes back some of the arguments of the Corinthians where they say, every man, you say, every man who says or prophecies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophecies with her head uncovered dishonors his head. It is just as though her head were shaved. And Paul just kind of says, well, that's absurd. You know, might as well shave your head off then. And then he says, you've explained to me that a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And so these are the words of the Corinthians. And Paul's saying, no, that's not what I was saying. 
He goes on in verses 11 through 12, and we could translate it, this word, nevertheless, really would be better translated as, what I'm saying to you is that in the Lord, woman is not independent or separate from man, nor is man independent of, se- of or separate from a woman. For just as woman came from a man, so also is man born of woman. But ultimately, everything comes from God anyway. So the Corinthians have taken some of the teaching, and they've tried to set up this hierarchy. They've tried to set up this difference in roles. And Paul's saying, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that in the Lord, in Christ, that we are not independent of one another. But both rely on the other. That woman came from man, and every man comes from a woman. And ultimately, where they come from doesn't matter, because ultimately, where do they all come from? From God. And so he's arguing, and so then he kind of fits in, then he gets a little snarky. He says, so judge for yourselves. Is it really fitting for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? You think the very nature of thing teaches you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him. So then surely if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. And so he's saying basically, you know, the long hair is there that it's, it's given instead of or as a covering. And one of the things even that I think bolsters this argument even more is this idea of long hair. You know, the, and so if we were to turn back to the book of Acts, and we're not going to go there now, in chapter, I think it's 18, yeah, chapter 18, verse 18, there's a story where Paul says, when I came to Corinth, I'm just going to read you the one verse here, Acts chapter 18, verse 18. It says, Paul stayed in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Genecre because of a vow he had taken. And so, as you read the story, basically, he came to Corinth, and he didn't cut his hair the entire time he was in Corinth until he left. He was in Corinth about 18 months. So, how long do you think, I mean, do you think his hair grew much in 18 months? Healthy hair grows maybe a half inch a month, so 18 months, nine inches long. Sounds like fairly long hair, right? So wouldn't it be strange now if Paul's saying, well, nature says hair shouldn't be long on men. When he came to Corinth, while he was in Corinth, he was growing his hair long. None of that, Paul knew that there were stories in the Bible that God set apart a particular group of people called the Nazarites, and one of the things they did, they didn't cut their hair. Maybe you've heard the story of Samson, right? One of the things about Samson was what? He had long hair. Now, was he a disgrace to God because he had long hair? No, I think Paul is, again, kind of making this argument of saying to the Corinthians, you're being ridiculous about this. You've taken my basic teaching about this relationship between people, and you've started imposing structures and systems on top of it. You started to try and put men over women and say men are in charge of women and women are inferior. They're just the glory of man, whereas men, they're the image and glory of God. And Paul's saying, no, you're getting it all wrong. You're getting caught up in hair coverings and head coverings and all what's going on. In fact, you know, the women have long hair. That should be their glory. And so Paul's confronting this group of women, or I'm sorry, this group of men who had tried to limit and oppress women with ideas that fit with the rest of the letter because the rest of the letter is about what? About shame, it's about unity, it's about loving and doing this. And Paul, again, is addressing 
this situation here. That here was some people who were more concerned about their honor and shame than about the cross of Jesus. That they were trying to suppress women and Paul is coming out against that. And all you have to do is read the rest of Paul's letters and see how important the women, the ministry of women was to him. He has women co-workers with him constantly. He elevates them. He lifts them up. He says they're to pray and they're to prophecy and to do these things. And here is just one of those cases where if Pepiat is right, and I, and I agree with her at this point in time, what he's doing here is not to be read as Paul, again, putting women down, but in fact, he's elevating women because he's saying the Corinthians have taken what's going on and they've begun to twist it. So just in short, if we think of verses 4 and 5 and 7 through 10 as quotes of the Corinthians, Paul is opposing this and saying, no, that is not the way that things are to be. And I think it fits with the greater argument of the rest of the letter because it's an argument based on saying that the, every part of the body matters. It's an argument that's saying, don't get so caught up in issues of honor and shame because that's part of what this is, is about elevating one group over another. And all through the letter of 1 Corinthians, that's one of the things Paul's arguing against is, don't try and elevate one group over the other, but that each and every part matters. And the Corinthians, probably the men in the group, have decided, no, no, we like our status and we want to keep our status. And one of the ways we're going to do it is by trying to keep the women down. So, yeah, women, you can prophesy, but you got to keep your head covered. You know, we don't have to keep our head covered because we're the image and glory of God, but you, you're just our glory. And so we want you to stay down. Paul's saying, stop it. Paul's saying, no. What he's saying is, no, in the Lord, woman is not independent man, nor is man independent woman. In other words, that each and every part has value. And so Paul is coming out against this. And so I would invite you, you know, to wrestle with this and think, what is this teaching? Why did Paul write it? I think in the larger picture, Paul's writing it to argue against a group of people who are trying to put down one part of the church. We're trying to say that one part of the church is a lesser part. And if we take some of these as quotes from the Corinthians, it all begins, it makes a little better sense. I said, there are certainly other ways to read it, and I'm not saying that those other readings are wrong. This is simply where I'm leaning at this point. This is how I understand it at this point in time. And that's the way nature reading Scripture be. And I would hope that for each and one of us, and this is kind of the bonus lesson for the day, is, you know, if you haven't changed your mind about anything in 30 or 40 years, you might want to reconsider what you're doing because I think the nature of things, we have ideas, we think, oh, well, it's obvious what it is. But we all come with culture, we all come with lenses, we all come with things, and we come to our Bible and we think, oh, I'm just, I'm just offering the plain reading of it. The plain reading based on a lot of other things. You come to this and you have an idea of what head means. You have an idea of what Genesis 1 and 2 are talking about. And then you, maybe you have other ideas from Ephesians chapter 5 and 1 Timothy chapter 2. And you have ideas all put in your head by different pastors and preachers and teachers you've heard over the years. So when you come to the Bible, you are not coming with a blank slate. You are coming with lots and lots of different ideas. 
And so part of it is to stop and to say, what's influencing what I'm reading, and what is Paul getting at, and what makes the most sense? And I think that's what makes the most sense of this passage. It's to say, Paul isn't here trying to put down women, but in fact, he's saying, I need you to stop putting down women. He's not trying to reduce women's place in the church, but in fact, he's trying to say, I want you in the church in Corinth to stop doing that, and instead to honor the women and also honor the men, to recognize that each and every part of the body has value, and no one part has more value than the other. That's what I think I think Paul is saying at this point. And so may we reflect on that, and may we, as the church of Jesus, value each and every part. May we honor each and every part of our church, and each and every part of the church of God. Amen.